0: Welcome to a special town hall edition of Conduct Detrimental. We're going to do things a little differently in view of the upcoming U.S. Supreme Court oral argument in NCAA versus Austin. So I'm Daniel Wallach, your co-host, and with me, as always, my co-host, Dan Lost. How are you, Dan? What do we have going on today? Can you do the big reveal? The Big Reveal,
1: this is a special episode on college sports. College sports are on trial. We have NCA versus Alston. These are moments, Dan, why this podcast exists. The first college sports case to go to the Supreme Court since Board of Regents in the early 80s. So Board of Regents has had a, a life in sports law textbooks and really just law textbooks for 40 years. And we're about to have a case. Yeah, Austin versus NCAA. That's going to be, um, you know, in our record books, whatever you want to call it, for a similar time frame. You don't have that that often. But that said, we are slaves to the beat, Dan. Just very quickly before we get into our, our big guess, our big reveal. Maybe likewise, this is a big week in sports law. The Deshaun Watson story is one of the biggest ones that we've seen in, 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 in a long time. Antonio Brown, I think, was a big story, but Antonio Brown wasn't with the team right? There wasn't some, uh, maybe some larger conspiracy theory. There wasn't, you know, he wasn't under contract with, with the Steelers. It was kind of towards the tail end of his career. Deshaun Watson's a 25-year-old quarterback of the Houston Texans, who, if you believe the reports, you know, Dan and I went over it, but, you know, demanded a trade and, and uh, the Texans didn't want to trade him. And then all of a sudden, this character, Dan, I listened back to our last podcast. We were talking about, I had said there were four active lawsuits and mm-hmm. you corrected me, and you said there were six active lawsuits. And now today, there's 14. I mean, by the end of the day, there might be 20, but there's 24 accusers that have contacted the, the Busby law firm.
0: Basically, one, one format or one boilerplate complaint for every plaintiff. Our mutual friend,
1: AJ Perez, over at Front Office Sports, he's done a wonderful job and tweeted the, the thread out. He's basically taking every complaint and he's posting it in a thread, you know, one through 14, whatever we're up to now. And he's astutely pointed out that all of these complaints, save for maybe a couple hundred words or carbon copies of one another. And that's how a law firm is printing these complaints and getting these out almost like a newspaper. They're coming out one after the other, one day after the other, because they're very similar to each other. And if people are wondering, hey, these complaints are alleging similar allegations, do you want to know why they're similar allegations? Because they're a literal dance, a cut and paste job from one or the other. Not all not all the allegations, but a substantial portion of these complaints. And I don't want to say it's, it's lazy,
0: but it's, it's not necessarily uh, what you would recommend on such a high profile case where we're all looking at these complaints. I never realized there were so many, uh, you know, licensed massage therapists on Instagram. That's the bizarre thing, you know. You know, if, if these allegations are to be proven, every single plaintiff is in the state of Texas, and he's in the state of Texas, but their uh, their connection was through social media on Instagram, where you know, allegedly Deshaun Watson is just, you know, looking up, you know, random women or random massage therapists on in, on Instagram, which seemed really strange to me when you're looking at a, a, an athlete who is so highly compensated, and that's how he's choosing his quote-unquote service professionals. But, uh, you know, AJ is one of the best in the business at, at investigative reporting. I worked with him a number of years ago, three, four years ago on the, on the uh, Ezekiel Elliott case, and this is the guy when he was working for USA Today. AJ pulled you know public records from the city of Aventura Police Department in Florida and and broke news. And this is nothing new for him. I mean, we've been talking about or the media has been you know playing up this lawsuit or these lawsuits for the past week, week and a half. And he was the first reporter who actually went uh, you know who, who rolled his sleeves up and 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 tried to gain access to every single state court complaint and posted them all in a lengthy thread. And I retweeted that as well. And I would encourage our listeners to just kind scroll through scroll through those complaints, you know, one at a time, and there is a, a similarity to them. And Mike Florio also pointed out that, isn't it kind of strange? And again, w- you know, we, we, we want, we don't want to prejudge the allegations, and we want to give every plaintiff deserves to be heard. But at the same time, Deshaun Watson deserves the benefit of the doubt, because the presum- it is not a criminal case with the presumption of innocence, but the burden of proof lies with the plaintiff whose names haven't even been identified yet. And that's the one, one major distinction that I've seen, you know, in comparing to the Antonio Brown situation where his, his accuser named herself and filed suit in her own name against, against Antonio. Yet in this case, with all of these allegations, there are Jane Doe's up and down the line, which make them difficult cases to defend, at least in the court of public opinion until you get discovery. And we know who we're talking about.
1: Yeah. So this is, I mean, truthfully, not much substantively has changed from the time that Dan and I last recorded the podcast, other than the number of civil complaints. The only other thing, if there is one, Tony Busby gave a press conference on Friday. Uh, Actually, this is a pretty big development, but he said in the press conference, hey – I don't know, I don't follow the Texans. I don't know who the owner is, you know, maybe. I think the owner lives on my street. And uh, meanwhile, (laughs) there's a a criminal investigation that's pending with the Houston Police Department. They reached out to me. So Dan, if we we were on- And they
0: they, they denied it. His credibility has taken a hit several times already.
1: If I was on Twitter, I would say, and the lie detector determined that all of those things were lies. Because A, the Houston Police Department, as you noted, the verified Houston Police Department said, there is no open investigation. We are aware of no contact between HPD and Tony Busby so that's not true number two in 2014 he bought a billboard for Johnny Manzel for the Texans to draft Manziel and in, in an interview he goes yeah I put up these billboards for my neighbor Mr. McNair so it's it's very funny right someone that is asking the team his hometown team right to draft a player obviously follows the Texans he went from neighbor to guy that lives on his street but I think above above all else, Dan, if anything and I think it just bears mentioning this is a guy that said I'm not going to litigate to the case of the press so Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even Saturday, uh, he's very much. I, I don't know if you called posting on Instagram, litigating the case to the press, but similar. So Dan, the, the big update that happened yesterday, and then you know I'll, I'll turn it over to you, but I just want people to kind of be aware of the time frame that aren't on social media, but just listen to the podcast. The big development we're waiting for: Rusty Harden, who is Watson's attorney. He's represented uh, Roger Clemens, James Harden, you know, two Houston athletes, Adrian Peterson. Go down the list. He's he's represented a lot of high-profile athletes filed his first statement. He basically attacked Busby for creating a media circus. He said, and this is really to the, to the substantive merits, he says that one of the 14 cases that's been filed as of, as of today, it, he he believes is false. And he, he submits evidence to show that that one case is false. Why Why maybe he's saying, I can't give evidence that the other cases are false. Dan, to your point, he has asked Tony Busby for the names of the plaintiffs so he can defend himself. And everyone has a right to be Jane Doe, but he's they're essentially using this as a sword and a shield. These are 14 confidential people. And Deshaun Watson can't know which ones are fake and which ones are true. He can't verify them because Busby is refusing to give over their names. So here's the affidavit of Deshaun Watson's marketing manager that Rusty Harden, I think, astutely put this in his statement. This is someone by the name of Byron Burney, I'm just gonna give you the main quotes. He says, in mid-January, 2021, I spoke with an individual who I believe is the plaintiff identified as Jane Doe, pending in Harris County. It was clear to me that the person I spoke with met with Deshawn, December 28, 2020, the same day that Jane Doe contends in her petition that she met with Deshawn. When I spoke with Ms. Doe in January, she stated that she wanted a settlement from Deshawn, though what exactly she wished to settle was not clear to me. So she goes on and essentially says that she had a back and forth with this woman who alleged that the thing was consensual, but she wanted $30,000 to just have hush money because it would be embarrassing if this came out. So this person, again, this is a sworn affidavit that was submitted. Essentially, I guess this Jane Doe had a business manager and this business manager got on the phone with this marketing manager, Byron Burney, and basically said, this is from from, uh, Watson's camp. I told this individual that this demand to be paid for not revealing a consensual interaction between two adults was extortion. And this is from Jane Doe's camp. He responded, quote, it's not extortion, it's blackmail. And then Watson Camp goes, I informed this individual that the show would not be paying the thirty thousand was requested. So this is an interesting tactic by Hardin. He's basically saying, We know that one of these is false. And here and here's our submission. What does that say about the rest of the allegations? And I, I'll turn it to you, Dan. I, I think it's a fascinating strategy.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, something doesn't sound right and seem right or look right to me. Based on right out of the gate, this is a a lawyer who wasn't, you know, straight up on the issue of the the police department involvement. I mean, he made a misstatement, a statement that turned out to be erroneous and was actually contradicted by the Houston Police Department. His advertising and trolling for clients certainly leaves a lot to be desired. I think the commercial advertising rules for lawyers have certainly been relaxed over the years, but what he's doing is uh, essentially outright soliciting. Uh, you know, I, you know, people use the word ambulance chasing. I'm not going to use it, although I just said it. I think his, I think his tactics for generating clients may run afoul, or could run afoul, of some of the guidelines. You know, for lawyer advertising, and and this this is a lawyer who's already you know been scrutinized by the Texas appellate courts. There's a, there's a court decision that was issued earlier this year. A medical malpractice case where he was accused of uh, of you know soliciting clients improperly, and the Texas appeals court upheld it wasn't a sanction against him, but upheld a finding uh, that he engaged in improper advertising. So this is someone whose conduct I'm not talking about his career, but his conduct within the last year raises more questions than it answers. Maybe and it's, maybe, maybe it's detrimental to his conduct. Maybe it's yeah, yeah, but luckily for him, he's not within the jurisdiction of NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. So there's no conduct detrimental you know provision in the Texas Ethics Code. But he's in the jurisdiction of this podcast and that's what conduct detrimental gets. But you know who is in the jurisdiction of Roger Goodell under the personal conduct policy? Deshaun Watson. And a year ago, all it took was one civil lawsuit against Antonio Brown for the wheels of the NFL justice to start spinning. And ultimately, this led to Antonio being placed on the commissioner's exempt list and serving a suspension, all for a civil case, an unsworn complaint filed by Antonio Brown's accuser. And she cooperated with the NFL. And I believe Brown cooperated with the NFL. So, an unsworn civil lawsuit that never reached a judgment ended up serving as the basis for paid leave and a suspension. Well, if one case would do that, what say you about 14 cases with the number continuing to rise? The only other thing that we had
1: with Antonio Brennan that we don't have yet is that was that criminal assault, that felony assault for throwing rocks. So that was probably part of the suspension. Maybe, Dan, by the next time we record, criminal charges will be against Watson. But that said, let's transition to the the story of the day, we're going to be hitting this at least two more podcasts. So we have oral argument in the NCA versus Austin case, March 31st. And I know everyone's hearing about it. But again, this is going to be a case that's going to be in the sports law textbooks, history books for 40 years. So we'd we'd be remiss if we didn't dedicate a podcast to it before oral argument. Uh, We're going to do one after oral argument and after the decision comes down. So you know, we're going to we're gonna have an opportunity to bring in a lot of big scholarly and academic guests. Dan and I, we're we a two-man show over here, but this type of case requires some heavy lifting. So that said, Dan, you always have the great idea to bring on the lovely guests. So we were kind of spitballing who we should bring on. A name that you and I both had in mind right away was Greg Clifton, who I know through my own personal connections. Dan, you know, obviously through your sports connections, but um, I can speak to Greg first. Greg uh, graduated from Hofstra Law School. He's now over at Jackson Lewis. He's, he's over in, in Arizona. But he's the co-leader of their sports industry group and he serves as the editor of the firm sports law blog so it's greg like us he's a guy that he's on he's on the beat i see what greg posts on linkedin constantly he, he's really in the know of these type of issues but beyond that um i've spoke to greg over the years greg works with major league baseball clients works as number of teams but I would say, and Greg, and maybe he'll correct me if I'm wrong, but the lion's share of Greg's sports practice falls in the NCAA realm. He works with teams. He works with schools. So if you need a perspective, right, if we're all sitting here like, why is the NCAA fighting this? Why is the NCAA not you know, not paying college athletes? As Greg will get into, it's not that easy, right? It's not that easy to, to uh, unwind this and work through different complex issues in a state at a federal level. So, Greg, what can give us a little bit of the NCA and school perspective? And separately, Dan, you gave a name. I, I had not met Warren before this podcast, but I've seen Warren's name over and over as I was a young law student. Uh, Warren Warren was all over this field with scholarly. I've read, I'm sure, a ton of his papers over the years. Warren, as he will get into, is kind of more on the student athlete side. So, Warren uh, is is now the executive director of the Boston College Chief Executives Club. He's a sports law professor over at Boston College. A really smart really well-published and a really well-spoken guy. He went to a school, a very big sports little school, uh, as, as we are aware of, that's Tulane. So uh, Warren is just like us, right? And, and just like Greg, there's sports fans that happen to be very well-published and really well-spoken attorneys on this. So Dan, I guess, let me let me ask you, I'm happy with our two guests, but how did you go about you know picking these two? I know why I, I, I thought of Greg, but what was your thought on both of these guys? We happen to have some of the same names.
0: The combination of their conversational uh, excellence and professional insight, uh, you know, along with their experience, these are two men who've spent a lifetime around collegiate sports. They're not just academics. They're in the trenches as lawyers. I mean, uh, Warren has, has advised a generation of collegiate athletes at Boston College, a number of them, is particularly in the, the hockey and the football realm. Warren's been you know, just knee deep in all this stuff. Greg's devoted his entire career to professional sports and I know you know on social media there's this tendency to equate you know the most knowledgeable people with with those who tweet a lot about it and that and, and and there are people like us who people who do tweet on a regular basis who are super knowledgeable but within the field of college sports law two names that stand out at least to me and from my lens having known them for for you know five years plus and and talk to them I can't think of two people or two sports law uh, experts in the realm of collegiate sports that have more knowledge, gravitas, and communication skills than Warren and Greg. And I knew that if I put this combination together, of course, if we didn't weight them down too much, we would produce a, a top-tier overview of the Austin NCAA case because I could listen to Warren and I could listen to Greg talk all day long. They are excellent storytellers, communicators, and they've been in this field for such a long time and have garnered industry-wide respect from all corners. And I can tell you that when you walk into the room at a sports lawyers association conference, Warren and Greg are like two of the, two of the leading lights who are holding court and, you know, people come up to them. It's almost like, uh, you know, they are, they're among the most respected uh, names in that room. And I include folks like Michael McCann and Gabe Feldman, you know, in their ilk as well, but Warren and Greg are best in class. And I knew I, I couldn't have thought of two better people and two better experts to break down this issue than Warren, and, and, and they hit it out of the park. Dan, they truly did, and I'm, I'm looking forward to sharing this interview with our with our audience and and anyone else who's listening. So uh, really, it, it was it was great get on both of our parts. I thought the combination worked perfectly and meshed perfectly. With that said, let us turn it over to Greg and Warren. We have a first in the history of conduct detrimental. This is our first town hall format, usually uh, we'll have one guest or Dan and I will uh, just kind of, you know, bat around a few different topic ideas in the week in sports law. Today, in advance of the U.S. Supreme Court oral argument in the NCAA versus Austin case, we turn to two of the most prominent experts in the collegiate uh, sports law space, Warren Zola and Greg Clifton. And I curated Warren and Greg with Dan's uh, acquiescence, because they are, uh, you know, to, to not only two of the most experienced and, and well-respected uh, lawyers in the, in, in the sports law space, but they're, they're very good communicators. They've been around for a while. They've seen—I don't mean to say that they're old, but they've been—they've uh, been around this for a long <laughs> time. And you know, for so, for someone who five years ago I was a neophyte in in the sort of the sports law space, I couldn't have come across two better individuals in my ascension to sports law than Greg and Warren. And, you know, just my first year at the SLA conference, nobody was friendlier to me. And that isn't the criteria for selecting them today. But I remember in advance of my first, uh, you know, uh, my first panel appearance at the SLA, I was like a bundle of nerves and Warren saw me at breakfast you know, just, you know, just so nervous going through all of my notes. What was I gonna gonna say about daily fantasy sports? I was just, I I, I didn't even go out the night before. I treated as if it were a first year final exam and Warren settled me down and over breakfast, he said, Dan, when you come right out of the gate, make sure you underscore and communicate to your audience. Tell them why we should care about this issue. Tell them what's significant about it. And so I'll turn the tables on Warren and ask Warren, can you do the same thing in the NCAA Austin case? Why is this such an important case, and why should people be caring about it?
2: Thanks, Dan, for the introduction, and uh, welcome to to Greg, and and, uh, Dan, nice to meet you. Uh, Again, appreciate you guys inviting us on here, and I've known Greg for decades. Uh, He's my second favorite member of his family. His daughter (laughs) is a student here at Boston College, and took my class and did incredibly well. So, uh, and I haven't met his wife yet, so he might drop to three. But anyways, it's, it's a great question, Dan, as we think about the Austin case, because as we all know, we've been paying attention to the business of college athletics. It's been growing exponentially. You can really pinpoint it back to 1984 in the Board of Regents Supreme Court case that was decided where the floodgates sort of opened up and many schools began to chase money over education. And as a function of that over the past, You know, 30 heading towards 40 years, people have become aware of the disparity between schools, the revenue being produced, and that has triggered a lot of people to start paying attention to this industry, beginning with O'Bannon in the early sort of 2011, 2014 timeframe. People started to talk about name, image, and likeness. And then the Austin case came by, which is even a broader look at the role of the NCAA, capping compensation, antitrust laws, the Sherman Act, and whether or not there are restrictions in place. And this case is going to be a huge determinant in what the future of college athletics looks like. Is the NCAA allowed to maintain this antiquated concept of amateurism based on dicta from a 1984 Supreme Court case? Or will a new decision in 2021 redefine what it means to be a college athlete in the compensation model? Um, and I think we're all really paying attention to the Supreme Court, which no one can really predict what's going to happen. And so I'm really, I'm excited to see that this change is finally coming to college athletics, something that many of us have been talking about for a long time.
1: Warren, I think your viewpoint's kind of stray a little bit towards, you know, student athletes and making sure they got paid. And I know, Greg, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, not that, you know, that you're anti getting athletes paid, but you were history in litigation. You do a lot of work the, uh the NCAA infraction level with schools. So you might understand that viewpoint a little bit uh, coming from that level. So um, just your overall thoughts on the landscape, what we're looking at here, uh, maybe the overall significance of uh, what could occur with Austin BNCA. Sure, I think
3: what's, what's crucial here, Dan, and, and again thanks to you and, and Dan for inviting Warren and I to participate today. As Warren just summarized you, know, this is a, in a lot of ways a case of first impression, but it really isn't. It's an old concept and going back to the, the cases that Warren mentioned You know, Justice Stevens uh, issued his decision. What's really interesting about that case that Warren mentioned is that the NSA actually lost that case. And as he used the word dicta, which a lot of people may not really know what that means, basically that means it was not crucial to the decision. It was kind of some ancillary wording that Justice Stevens put into his decision. And that's been utilized, which is an amazing thing. Over the last several decades, most cases that came up have utilized that dicta, if you want to call it, and essentially the NSA uh, lost in that case, but the NSA has been able to use that as a defense mechanism, and it's prevented a lot of these cases from going forward until we got to initially the O'Bannon case. Uh, and in O'Bannon, it's interesting, we have an Obanian and the Alston thing, so people understand it's the same federal court judge. If you want to call it forum shopping, whatever you want to call it, but a lot of these cases that were arising in the Ninth Circuit ended up in front of Judge Wilkin, and then Judge Wilkin made her decisions in the Circuit ultimately with slight modifications, confirmed her decision in O'Bannon, and then did the same thing here in the Ulster case. So really what the interesting issue here, and I think all four of us can agree on this is, it's not necessarily presented this way, but what is the line between amateurism and professional sports? Where do we draw that line and who should be determining that line between amateur sports and pro sports? What makes someone a pro? Someone who plays in the Olympics, they get compensated, they can do endorsements. Are they pros? Well. They're separate they're distinct from the quote unquote uh college athlete so the real interesting thing for all of us who practice in this space i think more than anything else is to seek clarification and what is that clarification going to mean on a go-forward basis and one other point and then we'll, we'll move on to some other issues is how will this interact with the entire name image and likeness concept you know the NCA was going to be dealing with that supposedly in january they put that off which a lot of people feel was really because of the department of justice letter who now is going to be a speaker at the table here on, on, on the 31st. So the question becomes, where are we headed here? What's gonna happen? Are we gonna have state laws? Are we gonna have federal laws? How will the Supreme Court decision impact either of those two areas? And what will the Supreme Court decision do to the NCAA? And how will they react to it? So you got a, a lot of columns happening simultaneously in addition to just the antitrust aspect of the Austin case.
1: We have the O'Bannon uh, in our rearview mirror. We have Board of Regents in our rearview. I just want to kind of frame this, you know, if we were writing a a brief or a motion, I'd write the procedural history. And I think it's important to see how we got here. It's it's no mistake that this has passed through the Ninth Circuit and the same judge that decided Obem. So back in March of 2019, Judge Wilkin decided the NCAA versus Austin case, decided essentially in favor of Austin. Uh, That case went up to the Ninth Circuit, was upheld by a three judge panel in May of 2020. And now I'm just, you know, the reason, you know, I guess we'll work backwards, Oral argument in this case at the United States Supreme Court is going to occur on March 31st. So it's about a week from today, depending on when you're listening to this podcast. But, um, you know, I think it's important, right? Greg and Warren hit this. This It's the first time in essentially 40 years that college sports has been, um, you know, a topic uh, at the United States Supreme Court level. And that's why, to to Warren and Greg's point, we keep talking about Board of Regents. Both sides keep talking about it, even though, uh, you know, it's a case the NCAA lost because there's no other history. So... Board of Regents has had 40 years of relevance, and is a very, you know, likely chance that Austin has the, that same type of time frame. So, just so people are following this, it's very interesting. Dan and I have been obviously keeping tabs on it. Every subsequent update, October, uh, the petition for writ of certiorari was filed. You know, we had November and December. We had reply briefs. We had the, uh, you know, we had some briefs that were filed. I guess this past week, week or two is when we started to have the substantive briefs filed by both sides and one interesting development that uh, I definitely want to get your thoughts on we had the uh, essentially the United States government stepping in in this case to some extent with the solicitor general which I know it doesn't happen. And it obviously it doesn't happen in sports because we don't have that many sports cases. You know, you guys having read the, the briefs that have been filed by the NCAA, there's been briefs that have been filed uh, on behalf of Olson. What I what I think is the most important issue to address up front, and then you guys, we can take this conversation in any number of directions. I think a lot of people, and myself included, thought that the NCAA was appealing this to the Supreme Court to try to carve out this antitrust exemption, to try to expand on Stevens-Dicta and actually get it set in stone. But we read the NCA's brief, I think it's Been well documented that they are not seeking an antitrust exemption. I'll kick it to you guys. Um, What do you think of of that strategy? And what do you think really about how antitrust law plays in this case?
3: Well, I'll just make a quick comment, which I think is relevant is, you know, the, the NCAA, right or wrong, had reached out to the federal legislative body of our country hoping that they were going to step in and try and provide them with this antitrust exemption that they are so desperately seeking. You know, as they've articulated on numerous occasions, they don't think handling this issue on a case-by-case basis is is really going to be productive for anyone. They're looking for some type of direction, specific antitrust stuff. They initially reached out, and if you look at a couple of the first pieces of federal legislation, antitrust issues were arising, and then the antitrust exemption was addressed. Legislators introduced their bills. It's interesting that the, quote, unquote, antitrust exemption aspect of it is clearly being rejected. Um, neither of those parties in the bills that Booker and Murphy have introduced, as well as Blumenthal, along with Booker, uh, address that issue in a positive way uh, from the NCA's perspective. So, again, it's, it's an interesting issue. I think right now they're just trying to hope and get some reversion back and sort of get the whole thing reinforced going back to Justice Stevens. Uh, and Justice White in his dissent to trying to get some of those issues that were raised and take them out of dicta almost and make them more relevant if they can. And obviously American Needle, which is another case, which was an NFL case, but interestingly enough, that's only about 11 or 12 years old. Uh, Justice Stevens there spoke as well in the in the majority opinion. And he has some interesting language again there where he, he basically looking me my notes to get it correctly. Uh, you know, associations are leagues that need to cooperate should not be trapped by antitrust, even though they are subject to. It. So again, I think there's this continuing flavor that he continued to offer in his opinions, going back to 84 and then up through American Needle, that the NCI NCA is trying to embrace and trying to utilize because again, their biggest fear, no matter what anybody says with the decision that's out there, if it's reconfirmed, are these quote unquote potential internships. And I've heard a lot of people talk to me about this, where that you know, the extension of some of these benefits that are available um, through Wilkins decision, which was affirmed by the Ninth Circuit. One of them, again, is this internship concept. And they're a little concerned about that becoming more of a pay-for-play pay idea, which is clearly what the N.C.A. is trying to avoid from their perspective. They want a line drawn in the sand between amateurism and professionalism. And they're concerned that the pay-for-play takes it over that line. And again, what is pay-for-play? Another interesting discussion, and that's their concern that some of these internships, whether well, now authorized by the Ninth Circuit, could lead to that. And, and I agree with what what Greg said. I, I
2: think to Dan to answer your question, when you talk about asking for Congress for an antitrust exemption, I, I think that they still would love one. I think there are lobbying efforts to get one, but I think it's becoming more and more clear uh, under this administration that that is unlikely. That Congress actually drafting an antitrust exemption for the to is unlikely to happen, and so now we turn to what those of us in sports law love, uh, which is some really good antitrust rule of reason analysis, right? I I went to law school at Tulane and studied under one of the masters, Gary Roberts, and he was an antitrust law expert working on the Raiders cases for the for the league, and you know, let's talk about that for a second because there's two parts to. The Alston case number one is a good rule of reason antitrust law sort of analysis, and then the broader picture in terms of what does this mean for college athletics. But when you think about Alston, right, the NCAA um, received a decision from the Ninth Circuit that said schools must be allowed to offer reimbursements for expenses pertaining to, you know, academic studies, computers, science equipment, musical instruments, etc., not included in cost of attendance, but related to the pursuit of academic studies. So that's what the Ninth Circuit decided. The plaintiffs are arguing that this the compensation limits are artificially restricting the college athlete compensation model and without limitations to be able to command greater remuneration for their services. The flip side is the NCAA is making a rule of reason argument saying that this compensation limit that they've established falls under the rule of reason and, and passes under the balancing test because they preserve demand for this distinct amateurism-based product of college sports. In contrast to professional sports, in integrating the college athletes into campus community. And that's their argument. And I think what we're finding over time is that this concept of amateurism, this demarcation between pro and amateur is a blurry line that the NCAA has moved consistently over time to benefit themselves, to, to uh, stave off scrutiny from antitrust. And what's unique about this in, in my mind and in, in many is that we've been very clear about what constitutes being a college student. And taking money for signing an autograph doesn't make you any less of a college student in a classroom here at Boston College or anywhere else in the world. And when you look at the, excuse me, the entertainment industry, there are students all over the country who are actors, who are musicians, who can go ahead and make money while they're a college athlete John Merritt at Berkeley College of Music or an actress down at, at Princeton or Yale and they can go perform in, in a show on on stage they can release a you know I'm, I'm going to date myself a CD or an album you know no, for something sure. on Spotify and they can come back into the classroom on Monday and they can be in the drama club and they can be in the school band and the professors don't look at them and say oh, no, you're a pro, you can't possibly add to the educational experience here at a university. That's just crazy. And so for the NCAA to to hold on to this antiquated notion of, well, if you're going to get paid X, you're no longer part of the college environment, I think that's crazy. And, And the last point I'll make before I get off my soapbox is they've artificially drawn a line, right? It's okay for them to receive all of these benefits for going to a tournament or a bowl game or getting gear or... X, Y, and Z. But if I take a college athlete out for a cup of coffee, and it's above their school requirements, all of a sudden, we have some level of scrutiny that might say, you no longer fall under our definition of amateurism. And there's a great case here at UMass with a tennis player, a mistake is made, 20 bucks is paid, and now a loss of eligibility. This is just crazy. And and I think this is, these are sort of examples that when you go back into a rule of reason analysis, the Supreme Court's going to have to figure out about this concept of what does amateurism mean? And are they really protecting something by upholding this cap, which is
3: clearly a restriction of trade? The question is whether it's unreasonable. The other issue, if I could just jump in more to, to support your point, the other challenge they have is the inconsistent application. And I always talk about this with some of my, my clients in the labor space. You know, when you're inconsistently applying a rule or a policy, whatever it might be, it really opens yourself up to criticism. You, know, you talked about the, the, the University of Massachusetts tennis case, and I always juxtaposed that with a couple years ago, the and I don't remember her name, I apologize, the female basketball player from Notre Dame who was very, very successful, um, and they allowed her to go on Dancing with the Stars and be paid for being on Dancing with the Stars without it impacting her eligibility. And I was just wait a minute. That's such an inconsistent position to take. And I think that's why there's so much criticism right now. Not to mention, you know, this this past week or ten days, you know, the way the 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 facilities were set up, the distinction between the men's tournament, and the women's tournament. They they just seem to always be stubbing their toe, or perhaps even more than that, running into a wall with with self-imposed walls. I mean, a lot of these things get them avoided, and that's some of the what people talk about right now with Obannon and. And obviously, the Alston progeny, progeny from that is, this could have all been avoided years ago if they would have, as you're espousing, Lauren, you know, looked at this and made this distinction between, wait a minute, what's the difference between a student-athlete signing autographs and getting paid versus uh, the musician who's sitting next to that same student-athlete in, in a history class? And I think that's why so many people have taken this position and are watching this so closely, uh, because of the fact of the NCAA's application of some of these rules in such an inconsistent. And, and as people argue, unfair way.
0: Greg, Warren, uh, I'd like to ask you about the parallel tracks that this case appears to be on with the uh, burgeoning name, image, and likeness legislation that is you know, being introduced in state houses all across the country. So one, how does this case and a potential ruling intersect with that issue on the state level? And how would it potentially impact the NIL laws that are that have already been enacted into you know, into being in states like Florida, is there, is there an impact that this ruling could have on these state statutes?
3: Well, I yes. think the third column, you know, I'll let Warren go. <laughs> That's Warren get the right answer. Yes, the the interesting aspect of this, Daniel, is you know there's I always, I've said it's columns, right? We have the state state uh, legislative column that you mentioned. One state going to be effective in July one of this year. California potentially considering moving up the date as well. Um, We have Maryland uh, very close to passing it, and we have New York State just reintroduced legislation from the same state Senator Parker that he introduced about a year and a half ago. So you have that state law column, which again initiated and began out in California, ironically enough, where all this stuff seems to be arising from. And then you have the federal column, and we have a multitude of federal bills, and we just saw the most recent bill being introduced by a, a, a senator from the of Kansas which is interesting because that senator for the first time seems to be taking some of the more partisan aspects of Senator Booker's bill and joining with some of the more what I'll say partisan Republican aspects of their other legislation. So that's going on simultaneously and I thought it was interesting when Senator Booker uh, a few weeks ago at the Aspen Institute talked about this might go until literally the day before the July 1 initiation effective date down in Florida. So He's, he's sort of playing this out a little bit. I think ultimately it's gonna to have to be handled in the federal space, but the key question for all of us is, are they gonna to get to it by July 1? And what if they get to by July 1, what is it going to be and how is it gonna look? And then ultimately the NCAA and all the other schools who are subject to these laws are gonna be reacting. If it doesn't happen by July 1, does someone try and move in and try and seek some type of injunctive relief to stop the Florida law from taking place? how is that going to play out? Obviously, the cost there, how does the NCA react to that? And then we're waiting on the Supreme Court decision, which they're saying is going to come in June. And if we get the decision in June, what's going to happen with that? So again, everyone's going to be in a reactive mode. Right now, there's separate columns that seem to be going independently, right? State laws, federal legislation proposals, the Supreme Court case. But all of a sudden, I think once you get to June 1st or slightly thereafter, a lot of these lines that are operating independently are gonna start to cross or crash into one another. And as I look to my friend, Mr. Lust up there as a litigator, it's gonna become a litigator's paradise. uh, Because again, I do think there's gonna be a lot of people moving forward and not just sitting back and waiting. So what happens? We don't know yet. It's gonna be interesting to see how it all plays out, but there are certainly multiple things happening at the same time. And a lot of it is gonna be contingent upon what the Supreme Court does. Because obviously if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the Austin parties, that's gonna be a big difference than if they rule in favor of the NCA in their appeal. So Dan, let me answer that question if I may, but
2: I'm gonna take, take a step back, right? And I wanna synthesize both of the last two comments and questions both by you and, and, and by Greg. Num- number one, these are self-inflicted wounds by the NCAA, there's, there's no doubt about that, right? They, we could have avoided all of this. In 2011, I testified in front of a subcommittee in Congress along with Ramogi, Huma and some other folks talking about some of these issues. And one of the things that I was very clear to underscore, as were my my, uh, colleagues, was that change and reform was coming to college athletics, period. And what the decision that the NCAA needed to make at that point, and this was 10 years ago now, was whether they wanted to enact change that would better address college athlete welfare and the commercialization of College athletics at the major power five schools. Again, there's over a thousand NCAA institutions, many of which Division three, Division two, are not having these issues. But that the NCAA had a choice to either enact some change themselves or have change imposed upon them by legislature in the court system coming up with a system that may not be ideal for anybody, including those of us who love college athletics, but aren't working for the NCAA. So that was something that we've been pointing out for a long time. When you talk about what's happening on the NIL space in and states and legislation, and federal government, and the NCAA sticking their head in the sand in January and punting and all of this stuff, it's a microcosm for how the NCAA tends to work. They want to wait and wait and wait. And all of a sudden, July 1 is going to come. And Greg is exactly right. Let me be very clear name, image, and likeness is coming to college athletics. It's likely to be there this fall, period, full stop. Now, under that assumption, and again, that's that's just my own statement, how much work is being done to address what does that really mean on a college campus? What are all the changes that are gonna be happening? Who's gonna be paying attention to this? Where are those guardrails that people are talking about? If you're a Nike school and someone wants to sign with Under Armour, if you are allowed to to represent alcohol or gambling and all of these different things and by the way we have not mentioned but if you want to see agents start filing their way onto college campus <laughs> or start recruiting high school students because this particular high school student is going to have some demand at the college level then all of a sudden you're opening those doors up and are the players associations ready for that and the final statement i'll make on on nil and we haven't really talked about this in terms of who's really going to benefit. I actually think that it's really a small number of sort of high profile athletes will generate some real money. But I also think that there's gonna be a lot of opportunity for some of these underrepresented sports, women's ice hockey, for example, here at BC, we have a lot of players who have been or are on the Olympic team, right? The ability for them to run a camp over the summer is going to be fantastic. Not everyone on the football team is going to make a lot of money, but there are going to be some individual folks, women's tennis or men's tennis and golf, giving lessons. These are things that they are restricted from doing that they would be allowed to do moving forward. And I don't know if that answers your question, Dan, but I I think that the NIL situation is really a microcosm for the NCAA's inability to think through the ramifications of this tidal tidal wave of change that's coming their way and continually sticking their head in the sand and just hoping that this This throwaway line from Stevens in 1984, which talks about preserving amateurism, would become this final shield against everything that was coming their way, and it's not going to save them.
3: And I think the other interesting point, Daniel, about that is, as Warren was just touching on, is, you know, the NCAA, they do put their head in the sand, but it'll be interesting to see if nothing is passed by July 1, and all of a sudden you have Florida and perhaps some other states are going to move up as as they pass some legislation over the next couple months how is that gonna impact like a school like Boston College? So for example, if they don't have NCAA modifications to their bylaws by that time, but there are state laws that are impacting them. So for example, BC is in a conference, are they in a conference, if Massachusetts doesn't pass the state law, are they in a conference that has other states that pass NIL legislation? And how does that impact them from a recruiting perspective and, and securing athletes? And then also, if it is in a state where you pass the law, Who's gonna be responsible for enforcing that law on the NCAA in, in a, in a, on a campus, which is an NCA bylawed campus? Are schools gonna to have to hire additional uh, compliance people or add additional duties to the current compliance people to make sure they are in compliance? As Warren said, with some of the state nuances about whether or not you can wear, for example, if the school's a Nike school, but the young athlete has an opportunity to wear Under Armour in, in a classic ambush marketing case, is that permitted? What's going to happen? Who's going to be enforcing that? A lot of these issues are going to come down on the campus level as
1: well. So, a couple of things. And actually, while we we're on the podcast, we had some uh, we'll call breaking news for us. We're all interested in. It. Uh, Oregon is proposing a name image a bill that would allow name image and likeness to uh, come into effect July first. So, you know, it's just another. You're going to see a lot more of that. And and, and I'll bet you that
2: Nike is behind that. But
1: I it, it makes sense. no. Come on, Warren, never. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people, and this is Dan and I have had in the past two weeks, uh, three weeks, state senators that have come on the podcast talk about sports betting, but name, image, and likeness in the same context. People want their names attached to these bills, right? So one of the few things in our country that's a bipartisan issue that, um, you know, for better or for worse, I don't, I don't really necessarily agree with it, but we, are not, we don't have sports betting in certain states because senators are fighting over, should colleges be in it? should uh, pros be in it, you know, so it's, they're fighting over minutia. Now, Warren and, and Greg, I, it's funny on this case, you know, I, I had a, I was talking to a colleague um, yesterday and I, you know, we're having a very high level antitrust conversation, how it's gonna impact name, image and likeness. You know, and we're all talking kind of like unvetted name and likeness, right? What the version of fair pay to play where athletes can make money um, from endorsement deals and whatnot. This case, at least as I read Judge Wilkins decision, um, I'm just gonna read uh, a kind of a quick synopsis. Judge Claudia Wilkin, uh, you know, held that the NCAA violated antitrust law by capping grants in aid to tuition, fees, room, board, books, and other expenses up to the full cost of attendance. And that colleges can't collectively decide that they won't reimburse uh, expenses related to education, e.g. computers, musical instruments, um, and incentive awards. So for me, as someone, right, like let's say, I didn't know the whole backdrop of the NCAA and I didn't know that they're fighting for, um, you know, antitrust protection. I look at this case and it seems to be like a pretty narrow issue, right? It's just talking about um, capping grants for tuition room and board and reimbursements on computers. How do we get from what seems to be a relatively narrow holding, right? With Sean Alston as a former West Virginia football player. How do we get here, right? And and to Greg's point, I love this comment, separate columns. I don't think name, image and likeness is fully on trial um, with SCOTUS. I think it's something ancillary, it's something similar but um, we're having a, a conversation about full name, image, and likeness. How do we go from what seems to be a narrow uh, area, right? Uh, they're, they're challenging to this larger concept of NIL. How do those two fi- two things fit together?
3: Well, I think the challenge you're facing is, you know, initially the, the criticism of Judge Wilkin is that, you know, a term we learned in law school years ago is that the concept of stare decisis is the fact that she is on her own rewriting and reinterpreting a Supreme Court decision. Now, of course, the flip side of that argument is, no, she's not, because as Warren said from the very beginning, that was really dicta. That was not really substantively part of the decision, which actually went against the NCAA. So, you know, I think that's the first issue where this, where this whole dispute seems to be focusing on is whether or not did she have the authority to overrule a case. And we and, you know, if you look at the submissions that were made by the NCAA, I can't
1: tell you, I didn't add it up, but I
3: can't tell you how many times they added and referenced Board of Regents in their submissions. Uh, in terms of support of their their presentation coming Can
1: in. I stop here for one second, Greg? Because I think sure. it's important to point out, and you guys, we hit on this. Um, Alston is a West Virginia running back, right? He didn't play for UCLA. Ed O'Bannon played for UCLA. So it was a logical, you know, may, that it would that it would end up in a California court. It would end up in front of Judge Wilkin. It would go to the Ninth Circuit. I think it bears mentioning, right? This seems to be a little bit of forum shopping that Alston got this case in front of Judge Wilkin. And we talk about Starry decisis, Judge Wilkins kind of bound by her own prior precedent. So I think it was a really smart tactical move on Alston's part to, to get it here. I think that's absolutely the equation.
2: Forum shopping has been part of sports law for, for decades, right? I mean, Judge Doty in Minnesota has (laughs) been the NFL, you know, and the PAs, you know, judge for, for forever. And so, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing untoward to, to, to that happening.
3: So pretty obvious. That's what was going on here, Dan. And and you know what, as more, was just saying, Historically we've seen that, especially in the sports plus space, where they go back to the same spot. And you know, typically they have the ability to form shop because of the issues that are they're dealing with are such that they can be essentially venued in multiple locations. So but but that's been the, the big issue is whether or not she went too far. You know, but as you said, in O'Bannon, she took care of it. But now the question is, did she modify that and go too far here in the Alston case and then ultimately. How does any of the starry decisions from the Supreme Court decision apply if, in fact, there is some basis for it other than an addictive space? So the bottom line that that's really if you put the the, the poles up, that's the two arguments on separate issues. One is the NCA, as Warren said, and I, I couldn't agree with him more. Is trying to hold on to an antiquated concept, something they've ignored for years. That if they wouldn't have ignored, I don't think we'd be in this situation. You know, one of their arguments they're trying to appeal on a sympathetic basis is that. You know, this this issue is going to be handled by multiple and multiple lawsuits on an ongoing basis. And we should have some deference as the experts in this amateur space to decide who's an amateur and who's a pro. So ultimately, the other question becomes, do we want the NCA deciding that and making those decisions? And if you look at them historically, a lot of people will say, no, we don't trust them. We don't think they are necessarily the right body to make that decision. And then the flip side is, yeah, but do we want to have a multitude of of lawsuits all over the country that the NCAA is is faced with defending and spending. They've already spent tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. We want this to continue. So we need some decision-making. We need some definition as to this distinction between amateur and professional. And unfortunately, because of the way it's been handled, it's been all over the place, as Warren said. We've had multiple cases going in different directions. And Greg, I've got a, you
2: know, one of the things that we haven't talked about, we're here in 2021, right? And we are, hopefully at the end of this pandemic. And I think that's gonna color some of the decisions moving forward, right? So the NCAA has been arguing about student welfare and maintaining the integrity of college athletics as part of a college experience for these students. And that's so critical. And and if we paid them or let them get paid for autographs, that would blow this up because that would be commercial in nature. And we wanna protect this line of demarcation that they talk about in their mission statement. Well, look at March Madness. Look at what's happening now as college athletes are traveling to play basketball, to generate revenue for college athletics during COVID, during this scare. And so I think to some extent, this ability for, for the NCAA to argue, it's all about student welfare in this, this line of, of college athletics. I think that because of the pandemic and because of what we've seen with colleges, trying to maintain this level of revenue, I think that takes away a little bit of their higher ground statement about, no, no, this is all about imageism and education. You can't tell me, like, I understand the value of playing sports in, in college, right? It teaches transformative skills. You can't recreate in the classroom, et cetera. But you can't tell me that playing basketball in a gym in front of a hundred people is a, is a worse educational experience than being locked down in a hotel to play basketball on television so that money could find its way to a conference.
3: Couldn't agree with you more Warren. And that's one of the things in in the, one of the final submissions that was made to the court in the last couple of weeks. That was one of the issues that I know the Austin team presented was this inconsistency. They're talking about protecting student athletes and all those things. And yet here they have them traveling and playing away from campus in the middle of a semester, essentially quarantined and locked in hotel rooms uh, without any ability to do other things. And again, is the educational experience being benefited by sitting in a hotel room really based upon the desire to get through this tournament and ultimately, I hate to say it, generate the revenue that the NCAA so desperately needs because the 2020 tournament was canceled.
0: <laughs> Warren, uh, Greg, in the waning moments we have left on the podcast, let's talk about the range of possible outcomes. Now, uh, the Supreme Court did not grant cert in the O'Bannon case. The Ninth Circuit does have uh, the statistical reputation of being the most heavily reversed or one of the most heavily reversed circuit courts in the country. I think the number that I've seen is 78 percent. The Supreme Court is now, you know, leaning even more conservative than it has been previously. How much does the composition of this court in your mind, play into the, the the likelihood of an NCAA victory here. And is, is that how you would handicap the possible outcome? And what are the ranges of possible outcomes here? You know, both win and loss. How do you see this case possibly shaking out when we do get a, a decision from the court?
3: I mean, I, I think it's interesting because clearly, you know, as we've been talked a little bit here about name, image, and likeness, which is really not a subject of the Olson case itself. There's a lot of things that are intertwined here that will be impacted by this decision. Uh, you know, one of the things I said from the first day, as you correctly just said, Daniel, where the O'Bannon case was not granted cert. I said, hmm, that's interesting. They granted cert here. They're not granting cert, I don't think, to just sort of, you know, smile at everybody and say everything's good. So they're going to do one of two things here, right? They're going to go backwards or forwards. They're going to revert back to Justice Stevens and try and say that it was not clearly dicta and try and apply some of the, the themes in there of this distinction between amateurism and pro uh, and again keeping in mind from the 1980s when that decision was made that distinction between amateur and pro is really really changed a lot so whether or not some of those highlights that justice stevens pointed to there and american needle are still appropriate we're going to find out i think pretty quickly um, obviously the flip side is if the NCA wins what are we going to see we're going to see i think more of a regressive tone and i know everyone said it was the department of justice letter that that stopped them from making any of these bylaw modifications addressing name, image, and likeness. Part of me thinks it was really delayed because they wanted to see what the Supreme Court was gonna decide and they had to figure out some way to quote unquote stall this decision because they had promised something in January. So the Department of Justice letter was a little bit of perfect timing for them. So you're gonna see two things. One is you're gonna see the extreme where they're gonna be forced to react or the other thing is gonna be perhaps as I said, a, a reversion back to some older standards, which will not be—I don't think—for good for anybody.
1: We mentioned oral argument March thirty-first. We didn't—we didn't touch into it. Dan and I will, will explain it. But the Solicitor General is popping in here. This is a, a very—I don't know—not n- a typical situation and one that obviously be you know in the sports law history books for some amount of time. But Greg Warren, anything? Uh, any parting thoughts as we uh, put this in the books?
3: Tune in on March thirty-first. <laughs> yeah.
2: I, I would agree. I mean, I think that history is going to be made. Both watching the oral arguments and then the decision, um, I, I do think that we are headed for for change. And I think that if you know, to play off what Greg said in terms of the decision, I think it's really hard to predict. Right? We certainly have a quote conservative majority at the Supreme Court, but these also could be business friendly justices who make a decision that would benefit the athletes in in free market as opposed to the NCAA and restraining trade. So I, I think it's really hard to predict what they're going to do. As would Almost every Supreme Court case. But I also think that the, the other thing that's that's sort of happening that we haven't mentioned at all when you talk about college athletics is other alternatives for elite athletes, right? If you're a basketball player, you now have other places you could potentially take your talents to generate revenue. And I think that will play a a, a role in what college athletics looks like if depending upon the NCAA decision or the Supreme Court's decision on the case. If they uphold some of these these levels of amateurism, then you might see more elite players going and getting paid for a year before they enter the league. Uh, if they release those those restraints at the college level, then some of that those alternatives, because college isn't right for everybody, may become less appealing. So I think that that either way, we're going to see a very different college basketball environment in a couple of years. Great point.
0: Thank you, and and for Greg for shining a light. On this complicated subject matter and, and breaking it down into you know you know I guess language and, and and words that we can all understand because that was one of the reasons I chose you. Uh, you both are, have been a f- really fantastic communicators in the sports law space, and I wanted you know with law professors you know it could be focused more on the academic side of it, and I wanted a practitioners, and I wanted somebody who was sort of like you know in the trenches in, in collegiate sports, and I think we have uh, you know through you and Greg, or Warren and Greg, we have like the perfect you know, blend of voices to kind of overview this important topic as we await oral argument in a couple of days. So uh, Warren, thanks for your support back in 2015. I don't think I would have gotten through that experience uh, without you. I think that was one of my better panel experiences and you you definitely made me, you know, relax me a little bit and gave me the confidence to succeed. And Greg, I can't think of uh, between you and your partner, you know, Paul Kelly, to to the the, the, the most super people, nicest, you know, people in the the entire sports law space. And uh, the three of you have made me feel so welcome. And as a neophyte in my 50s to go from, you know, sort of the the world that I had occupied in appellate law and litigation, where it was really tough to sort of like crack the sort of, you know, crack the old boys network to being made to feel so welcome. In my first ever, you know, conference, and you guys have been so consistently nice to everybody that you've been uh, that you've come across that I, I wanted to really have you back on because it reminded me of, of, of one of the most positive experiences I've ever had in the sports law space. And you guys hit it out of the park today, uh, so thank you very much. And we'll check back with you obviously in a few days after the Supreme Court oral argument to see what you guys thought of the argument and, and which way it's going to, you know, tilt.
2: Thank you, Daniel. Wonderful, and thanks, Sam. We'll, we'll send you our, our invoice.
1: Sounds good. Send it to Wallach, not yeah, me. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> Ooh, Dan, that was heavy. I think I think we've covered all angles of it. I, I think I mean my goal for this was to give our listeners enough to be dangerous to understand the magnitude of this case, and and we say this is the first time the NCA, you know, Supreme Court has uh, touched the NCA in 40 years, we mean it. The the one topic that we didn't get to, which, you know, I I just, it doesn't really happen that often, and I know I I alluded to it, but the Solicitor General here over at the Justice Department has, uh, you know, filed uh, a brief and and a request to have oral argument this case for her to give arguments on behalf of Sean Alston, the, the West Virginia running back. So, you know, again, I think the people that that follow me know I'm not the most political person. I'm I'm at least informed enough that this doesn't normally happen, that the Solicitor General doesn't usually pop into cases that don't involve the federal government. So that'll give you some idea of of how important this issue is. We're we're circling the wagons of federal legislation, but we have a a federal player, right? The Solicitor General, you know, popping in. So it's I don't know. I don't I don't know what to make of it other than that like this it's Elizabeth Prelegar. So, yeah, I mean, uh, Dan, you, you you would know better than I. I've, I, I was a, I don't wasn't even born when uh, the Board of Regents was just in existence. Can we watch these on live stream? These these SCOTUS oral arguments?
0: No, I think the, the oral arguments are not are not available for video. Uh, the recorded argument, the audio, uh, becomes available, uh, I believe, a little later in the day. So we won't be able to do a blow-by-blow description or follow in real time. But I think the argument will be available on the Supreme Court's website a little bit later in the day. And of course, by by the time that comes around, you know, uh, 30, 40 people who are in the court that are working for various media outlets are gonna break it down. And usually the Supreme Court uh, reporters Yeah, Robert Barnes from The Washington Post and The New York Times reporter. uh, God, I forgot his name for a second. Uh, They usually nail it. They have a pretty good batting average of being able to read, you know, read the court and and do the takeaway following oral argument. But uh, I think it would be great to have Warren and Greg back on to sort of like debrief uh, our audience and basically break down what happened in the Supreme Court oral argument because these guys were on fire today. Uh, we're talking about two men who've devoted, you know, collect, you know, in the aggregate, more than a half a century of their careers to collegiate sports law and sports law in general. They really enlightened in the subject today and enlightened me. Uh, I was very happy with, with how the interview went. A lot of issues that they've covered and, and, and from, from a number of different angles. But if you're going to talk about the Solicitor General's impact, well, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't bode well for the NCAA because the Solicitor General is siding with Austin here. Uh, but this is almost out of character for the Solicitor General to, to wade into a, a you know, private case like this, because what the Solicitor General normally does in a case involving a federal statute is when the statute is under attack constitutionally, either facially or as applied, the, the Solicitor General represents the federal government. And defends the law that's being attacked. Here, we don't have that scenario, so I question how much weight, if at all, the Supreme Court will accord the Solicitor General's viewpoints. I think what is more important is the fact that the Supreme Court is tending to, you know, since the Trump administration and with the several new appointments, the Supreme Court is more conservative than ever it could be more pro-business, and the Ninth Circuit is the most heavily, or one of the most heavily reversed circuits in the country. I think the statistic somewhere is around 78%. So uh, I think the NCAA goes into this case, you know, if you look at it statistically as the betting favorite. But you can't look at it statistically because every case, it, you know, has its own facts, has its own, you know, you know, legal issues that are that are that are unique. Uh, And you can't just look at it as batting average and statistically, you know, uh, you know, over over a five year time horizon. I think I think there's change afoot. And the way the collegiate sports has evolved since 1984, the landscape is so different that I think this is, at least in my mind, shaping up to be a transformational decision that will overhaul or at least dramatically alter the legal landscape for collegiate sports so I would I would tend to go against the conventional wisdom of just, of just looking at the rate of reversal and the number of conservative justices I think this this is going to be a transformational decision for collegiate sports I think maybe the you, you hit the nail
1: on the head with one of your questions Dan um, I we, we sit here and we're, we're having and Greg said I like this, say separate columns but we have the the executive branch we have the judicial branch we have the legislative branch. Now, we are dealing with, in this, in this case, it's a pretty narrow issue of right, these non-education-related benefits, which is right here. It's not full name, image, and likeness. That's not what's on the table. Name, image, and likeness is fully on the table right when you're in Florida. And I mentioned that Oregon's now proposing one, and we talked about California, Maryland, New York. Name, image, and likeness is on the table there. I don't really know, and if you listen to them, I don't really know if anybody knows exactly what will happen if the if the Supreme Court right comes down with their ruling in June or if they come down in July or August you know will there be an injunction filed by the NCA against the state of Florida against Oregon like I, I I can't stress this enough the 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 chaos that will ensue on July 1st no matter what no matter what
0: happens right we're just oh, we uh, love chaos Dan we love chaos chaos is good for business that said I, I you know I I thought today was a fantastic episode so I think I'm ready to put
1: in the books unless you have anything else to add.
0: I mean, Guaren and, and Greg have like lifetime gravitas in the sports law community. And, you know, when they talk, you know, people, people like myself and, and others, you know, we listen because they're among uh, they're sort of in the Mount Rushmore of respected sports law voices. They truly are. Uh, and they stand the test of time. They're phenomenal communicators. And, um, you know, they broke down the issues quite eloquently and and insightfully. So. Uh, looking forward to the oral argument this week, and hopefully we'll be able to have another episode. Uh, looking ahead at what we think will will it will happen, what the landscape might look like based upon the takeaways from the Supreme Court argument.
1: So as always, Dan Wallach is on social media at Wallach Legal. Myself, Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust. The show at Conduct Detrimental. Dan, get ready for this: Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and I just created a LinkedIn account, which has all but seven followers. Isn't that glorious? But uh, that said, uh, from Dan and myself, we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental.